reading from chapter 12, beginning at verse 12 and reading through to verse 43. John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, Your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what can I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Now invite Jeff to come and speak and I'll pray for him as he does that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. And as Jeff comes, we ask that you would speak through him. Give us hearts and minds open to the leading of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Peter, and for that reading. The uh, period leading up to Easter, I thought, would be a good time to return to John's Gospel, where we looked at last year the the revelation of the Lord Jesus through particularly his signs uh, and the way John is constructed is that uh, we have about 11 chapters about Jesus' ministry and then these this next part of the book uh, really slows down time so we're only looking at uh, uh, a couple of days that are in the last I don't know how many chapters uh, nine chapters that follow. Uh, uh, there is the period after his uh, resurrection, of course. But uh, So John deliberately wants us to pay attention to detail. He's really slowing us down as he comes to this. And this passage here is important because this is the last time Jesus preaches publicly. This is the last day of his public ministry. And I think if uh, uh, it wouldn't be a strong... Uh, assumption or a weak assumption to make actually that uh, what he has to say here is pretty important and wants us to pay attention. So let's just paint the scene here because it's, it's a fascinating scene. There is so much happening. This is a very dynamic scene. Here we know that probably 48 hours ago a thing has happened 
in little old Bethany uh, that a man, Lazarus, who was dead, thoroughly dead, has been raised from the dead. Now, that hasn't happened in the human race of uh, humans uh, up until this point, and that brings about an incredible wave of enthusiasm. And it's happening right on the eve of the Passover, which is the identity-forming feast for the Jews. They look forward to Passover. Passover told them every year that they are God's special children, that God had saved them. He had redeemed them from slavery of Egypt uh, at the cost of firstborn. And this now was Passover time and the word gets out so you've got a whole lot of people that have gathered around the news bearers about Lazarus but then you've got this other wave of people who have spent their hard-earned cash, sometimes cashed in all their superannuation basically to get to the Passover. We're told that uh, the the uh, city of Jerusalem, which normally hovers around 350,000 people, would swell at Passover to something like 2.7 million. So that's an incredible density of people. And so we have this word getting out, and on the one hand, you've got this tide of people coming out to see Jesus who've come to Passover. And uh, they are uh, there to celebrate the essence of Judaism and what it is to be Jewish. And they are mingling with uh, these people who have seen or heard first, second hand this incredible miracle. It's like two tides meeting in a river. And these people are just swelling the road to Jerusalem. Like either side of that road is bodies thick. And it's interesting that they, they... pick up spontaneously palm branches. Now, they're not doing that because the mozzies were bad or what have you. In fact, I remember, uh, really, we often domesticate this little incident. And when I was a kid at Sunday school, Palm Sunday, um, you know, the kiddies would parade with palm branches and, you know, the start of the service or sometime during the service and mothers would have gone to trouble to, you know, get the tea towel on the head and build a little toga and safety pins and all that and and uh, we never realized what it was about but this event is not some domesticated liturgical event for the kiddies this is a revolutionary statement two centuries earlier the jews tried to rebel against the romans and they the the, the city of judea this this jerusalem actually printed their own coins and the mark of rebellion was the symbol of the palm branch the Romans crushed that rebellion. But now they don't have just an ordinary leader. They have someone that has the imprimatur of heaven upon them, upon him. And so they come and they think, well, this must be the day. This must be the time that the prophets spoke about. This must be the true Davidic king that everyone has been waiting for. This must be the ultimate liberation of Israel. We're finally going to get our place in the sun. This is the day and this is the leader. And that's why they're there flapping those palm branches. And you can imagine the scene as they yell in unison. The crowd catches on and they start to get into a rhythm as they sing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is the one that they come to worship. 
this day. He comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's who they think this is. This is an incendiary moment. These people would walk on coals for this man right this moment. And all of Judea would rush to his aid if he clicked his fingers. But it's interesting that right at that point, Jesus appears in the midst of this dense crowd. It reminds me so much, and I confess, that I'm a Tour de France tragic. Every year I tend to flick on the tube and beyond the hour of bleariness, as my wife's voice, come to bed, vanishes in the wilderness. I, uh, I then uh, get to see, and I can still remember strongly the, the best year, I think it was 2009, correct me if I'm wrong, when Cadell Evans finally broke through after two seconds. He finally got the first place. And the last day of the ordeal, that is the three weeks of the Tour de France, he finally enters the capital. And it's just one of those rules that in the Tour de France, you, you just don't race on the last day. You keep the position in which you were as you come into the city. And so the leader leads the place getters and the entourage around him. But can you imagine Cadell Evans entering Paris past the Arc de Triomphe, down Champs-Élysées, and there he is on his lovely pink little girl's bike with trainer wheels and a little basket pedalling along because that's the magnitude of what is happening here Jesus appears and he's not on a grand steed he's not even marching he's not in a chariot he's on the back of a colt that's never been written a donkey and he's bouncing along probably side saddle daggy Jesus he's actually reigning on his own parade and he's trying to say something in protest against the masses and the mass of opinion that finally is ready to put him on a pedestal. And he's trying to say, mm -mm, your script is not necessarily my script. His script comes from the prophets, from the word of God. Out of Zechariah 9, 9, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. I am a king. But the paradigm king I'm working off is this one. For eyes to see, for those who know the word, they would have understood what he is saying in that demonstrative three-dimensional sermon of sitting on a little donkey that's never been written. And that's what he's doing this day. And as he enters, the crowd keeps on roaring, the euphoria, the adrenaline is electric and everyone is infected by this moment except the Pharisees who look out. And these are the people who, if you read a little earlier in that chapter, they know that Lazarus has risen. They know that something unique has happened, but they know that that means they've lost their grip on the people. And they, instead of celebrating, are bitter and twisted. And all they sense is that this Jesus has run away with a microphone. And the crowd, the great unwash, the ignorant, have gone after him. They can't stomach either of them. It's interesting that Jesus and the Pharisees are probably closer in opinion at this point than at any other time in his ministry. Well, right then, at that moment, you get the atmosphere Right then, 
some Greeks appear and they muscle through the crowd and they ask Phil for an audience with Jesus. Now, they've probably gone up to Philip because, one, he's a Galilean. He comes from an area where a lot of Hellenistic people live up in the north. It's a mixed race up there. And, and they approach him because his name is Greek and they think probably he has a bit of sympathy. Now, why have they come, come up there? They, they think that the disciples are his, his, his managers and they're the ones you approach at a time like this. Yeah, this is typical of so many Greeks in this world. They're impressed by Judaism. They're called God-fearers. They're impressed by the ethical standards of of monotheism. And the fact, you could build a civilization upon these ethics. And they had their own philosophical heritage. and, and, And this was part of the problem of the church ever since this time, is that the church tried to merge Greek ideas and the Bible. And these people came along, and what they're doing, it's actually a blasphemy. They're actually going to run their, their spirit level over Jesus and just see whether he's on the level. They think they can appraise him. You know, they have a philosophy of the good life. It's called eudaimonia in Greek. And that's what all their philosophers thought about and pondered about. How do we produce a good life in the Greek city-state? How do we produce ethical and virtuous people? We've got to give people a a sense of their significance and a sense that their life counts and that they can make a contribution. They learn to live in harmony. They know their place. That's the Greek city-state. It's like an early version communism. And they philosophise that. And they're wondering whether this Rabbi Jesus is on the same page as them. And they're going to check him out and check out his credentials. And Jesus doesn't give them an audience, he gives them a sermon. In fact, he doesn't speak to them at all, he gives the sermon to the disciples. And isn't it a fascinating little sermon that he gives? It's an agricultural sermon, it's a sermon out of his world, not the Greek city-state. And he says, interestingly, they have tripped a switch in his thinking. And they say, and he said, says to answer these Greeks, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Yes, this is an hour of glorification. This is an hour of triumph. This is an hour where you'll see the Son in his true colours. Then he, he just blows it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, as every farmer knows, it remains alone. You know, you scatter wheat on the ground, you get one grain for one grain. Press it into the ground, bury it, it'll produce. And I'm told, the farmers amongst us could correct us, that you know, a good harvest of wheat from one grain will produce 168 more. And Jesus' whole emphasis here is that if you really want to know about fruitfulness, it actually follows burial. It's about death as the way to significance. It's a different formula, totally. It's an inversion of the Greek ideal of honour and respect. It's burial. It's loss of significance. Jesus makes sure that they don't understand, that they can't miss his point. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world, sounds a bit neurotic, 
will keep it for eternal life. Jesus' whole formula for life, his formula, the life formula that he is following to Calvary, the life formula that God gives us is this, die. As one great saint said, when Jesus bids us follow him, he bids us come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's the nature of the Christian life. And if we think he's just talking about himself, he goes on and he says, if anyone serves me, if anyone wants to carry my name, he must follow me. The paradigm is me for the Christian life, for the spiritual life. And where I am, there my servant will be also. We'll be inside the same ministry. And I'll tell you what, furthermore to that, if anyone serves me, the Father will honour him just as the Father honours me. That's really the question we've got to ask here tonight for each of us, is really what sort of honour do we want? The honour that comes from the definition of the good life, from normality, or the honours that only the Father can bestow which the world will never see or understand. You know, I can remember when I was a young fellow uh, finishing university. I'd sort of taken a year off and was doing a lot of Christian work for different groups and including the AFES group at Monash Uni and uh, working part-time. And I had to decide what I would do the following year. And lo and behold, I, um, due to the pressure of my father, uh, <laughs> decided to apply for a job with the Treasury in Canberra. He'd seen a job interview. And, uh, and two days later, I was in the interview. And I was surprised. And I remember getting this interview and uh, going into the top of Russell Street and uh, being up way up high. And they had this panoramic uh, window there that you could look at out of the whole city. And uh, this was before the uh, word geek was invented. But uh, I remember being invited into this room and there were two of them there. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and I wasn't really sold on economics, I must say. And, uh, but I was, I'd sunk my teeth and I'd seen that the Lord put his hand upon my life to preach the word of God already at that time. And that was what kept me awake at night uh, and I went into this interview and it was going really badly. I found it really hard to concentrate because these two fellows were silhouetted in front of this glass window and I could see you know, the city there and the MCG there. And I, I wasn't even hearing their questions. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to get this job. And then they asked me this clincher question. They asked me, because it was the day after the budget had been handed down and all good economists stay up real late to hear the budget. Except I hadn't... <laughs> And they asked me, what sort of budget do you think was handed down last night? And I didn't have the heart to tell them I didn't hear it. I was trying to think, what did I hear on the news this morning? And I knew we were in a position where you know, we had a bit of inflation, but we was just like now, actually. We, the government clamps down, raises taxes. It could send the whole thing spiralling into a recession. I, I said, oh, the way I look at it, I think the budget was mildly contractionary. And uh, <laughs> committed myself to a mediocre answer. And these two fellows looked at each other and the first one said, hey, 
mildly. And everyone said, yes, but contractionary. And the other one's going, yeah, it's mildly contractionary. Oh, that's right. And off they went. I'm sitting there going, oh. <laughs> so that's what an economist does, is it? <laughs> anyway, I walked out of that interview and I went home and uh, I said, how would the interview go, son? And I said, oh, I don't think I'm going to Canberra. <laughs> Two days later... I went to the letterbox and I got out of the letter to about the interview and I've been offered the job. And I think at that moment that was the reason why that was the recession that we are meant to have. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, anyway, so uh, I was about to say yes when another letter arrived the next day to say that I'd been offered a place in Diploma of Education as a teacher. And I thought, that's interesting, because I knew that they were as giving those out, they're as rare as hen's teeth in that particular year. Uh, hens don't have teeth. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I, uh, I decided I'd better uh, think about this and pray. And I went and talked to a few of my leading Christian friends about this. And I said, what should I do? And I talked to friend and friend, Christian friends, People I respect. And you know, to a man, they all said, well, you've got to go with the dough. You've got to follow the money. Forget teaching. This is a great job. I thought to myself, whose tune are they dancing to here? That sounds very much like the spirit of the world. None of them gave me any idea of how to wrestle with, well, which one is more likely to prepare you to be effective as a servant of God? No one gave me that idea. And it just strikes me as ironic that we can live in the Christian community just like the world, as if what the world calls the good life is the best life. As if that's reality. As if that's all anyone could be expected to do. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to press that life into the dirt. You've got to be prepared to go where I say, when I say, to do what I say you should do. That's the Christian life. If you want to follow Jesus, you cannot be normal. You cannot follow the world as if it is neutral because it's not that's the way that leads to death the wrong sort of death you die the identity which you've been given by society so that you can have the identity that comes from heaven that is the offer of Christ and right at this minute Jesus he's in this crowd he's got these Greeks around etc and he turns inward into his own thoughts. And he says, basically, it sort of comes across a bit too religious in the way it's been translated, but what he's saying is, you know, he has a little inner look and he checks out his soul. And he knows that around the corner is the agony of Calvary. And he goes, I should be worried. I should be troubled. 
but I'm not. You know, there's a little section here. I, I would have translated this with two little, little English words. I would have crept in. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. As if this is the reason why I've come, he says to himself. Father, glorify your name. Bring it on. Glorify your name. Whatever it takes. You know, that's the sort of response that heaven cannot hold back on. And a voice from heaven for the third time in his life, his baptism, his transfiguration. And right now, at the very end of his ministry, heaven cannot wait. And it pours out and it says, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. When heaven speaks, heaven is thrilled. And that's the nature of this moment. And the crowd stand there and they're looking around. Did you hear that? You know, someone has thundered. It's a little bit like when you're at Flinders Street at peak hour and a sort of a muffled semi-Aussie Macedonian voice comes over the speaker. But you know, it sounds like you know, the trains to Lillard are being cancelled and catch the bus on Platon Florida. And you think, Did, what, what is that? Was that me? Am I meant to listen to that? And half the people have missed it because they've got their earplugs in. And that's what's happened here. Heaven has spoken clearly. This is the way of glory. This is glory redefined. Watch this life. Watch this space. And then Jesus says, you know, I didn't need to hear that voice. That's not for my comfort. That's not reassurance for me. That's for you, he points out. Because you need to realise that three things are happening right this moment. One, now is the judgement of this world. All that the world considers good and decent and honourable and respectable, I condemn. And I'm taking it to the cross. That's my statement. What the world considers good, God considers trash. And secondly, now the ruler of this world is going to be cast out, finally. The prince of glory, and I don't know how this is, I don't know what it's like in, in the seventh or the 13th heaven or what, but he is turfed, he is ejected at this moment out of the upper story. He no longer has a say in the court of heaven, right, because of this Jesus. This Jesus is going to take the venom from that serpent for us. And the serpent will not be able to resist that bite for us. And right at that minute, as Jesus takes that bite, which is death itself, the serpent is defanged. And he doesn't realise it. And that's what Jesus is looking forward to. And Jesus is pumped at this moment. And he's on a roll. And the people are thinking, my goodness, what's got into this guy? This, this one is going to cast down the ruler of this world. And thirdly... When I do that, that is the moment at which I will start to draw the men, Hebrews and Greeks, the whole world has a possibility of being coming into my own kingdom, under my reign. And he said this, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to himself. It looks as Jesus is speaking of something which he has seen and advanced as he is nailed to that gibbet and then catapulted up, 
couple of days later. As that happens, it looks like defeat, but it's defeat for evil forever. And that's what he's looking forward to. He can't wait to win the victory. Painful though it be, he cannot wait to win that victory. And he said this to show what sort of death he is going to die by. And the crowd actually, at that point, get troubled. Hold on. Hold on. Death? We've come here for the, the other gospel, the victory one. Yet we heard that the Messiah... Uh, even the Bible says somewhere that he lives forever. I mean, it's a good assumption. I mean, the kingdom is eternal, so the king must be eternal. We're, we don't read death anywhere. That's not thought. We're, we didn't come along. We came here to hear something inspirational. Give us something to fill the heart and send us home with glee. You know, run over the Romans, something like that. Uh, you know, but they didn't come. They're not singing from the same song sheet. And Jesus knows this. And so Jesus says to them right at this minute, the light is amongst you a little while longer. He is the light. This is not an ideology he's offering them. He's not asking, he's not suggesting that they've got it all right and just add a little Jesus patch and it'll just be right, be finished and perfect. He's not like looking for a way of improving your ability to live the fulfilled life. He wants to kill that life. Literally. Because it's going to kill you, literally and eternally. He is looking for a different formula altogether, the light formula. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. You want to wander around in the dark, be my guest. But while you have the light, believe in the light that you might become the sons of light. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, believe in the light and go on believing and that minute you believe, you become a son of light. You have the same characteristic. Eternal life is what he's talking about. And at that point, it's game over. Jesus departs. They've had the message. They've had their opportunity. What they want to do with it is up to them now. He doesn't continue to pursue. And I just have to say, as I said to the folk this morning, it is my responsibility under the Lord Jesus Christ, for which I was ordained, to let you know that unless you have resolved where you stand, vis or vis, this one as Lord and Saviour, you have not resolved your eternal destiny. However, if you believe this hour, this moment, this breath, that this Jesus is who he said he is, and that he is the victor over death and sin and the devil. If you trust him as the light, your eternal destiny is sealed. And you will be with him on that great day. I've told you. I've done my bit. I don't know who you are, but you must resolve that before God and this night you will be held accountable to on that decision. My part is over. Jesus' part was over. Now, when he said these things, he departed, and we simply finish with this picture out of Isaiah. Though he'd done so much before them, they still didn't believe. What more could a Messiah do, you might say? 
so that the world parted, spoken by the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. Lord, out of Isaiah 53, the servant song. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To the Jews. They've seen everything. They've seen the strong arm of God right in their midst. But therefore they could not believe because Isaiah again says from Isaiah chapter 6, remember the story of Isaiah in the temple, the holy, holy, holy. They see, he sees the glory of God that cannot fill the temple and fills, spills out of the temple. And he says, He has blinded their hearts in Isaiah 6 and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. That is the glory which is the crucified carcass of Christ. 700 years before it happened, Isaiah had already seen it. And he wrote the preview, which is his book. Nevertheless, many of the authorities, the leading people, actually believed in Jesus. But you know, it's amazing the sort of transaction they made. They believed in Jesus. They couldn't deny the evidence, but their own eyes had seen. He added up. And they could see him, and they had, and they'd heard him, but they didn't follow him. Because if they confessed him publicly, as friends here amongst us are going to do in a few weeks' time via baptism, they would be turfed out of the synagogue. It would be the end of their church membership, end of their economic life, actually. But they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved having a solid reputation, a good seat at the tabernacle, kids going to the best schools. That's what they were worried about. When they could have had the approval of heaven itself. That's the choice many people make. And many people like yourself who start warm at this age are dead cold by the time you're my age. Why is it? It's because the immediate things of this world shout louder. They always do. They have an allure. You know, most of us have five decisions in life. Who we're going to marry? How big will be the mortgage? What career we'll do? What college we'll send our kids to to start them on the same track and then which cruise will we take? That's not a full life. That's the lure of the evil one. That's not this. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, no, it was longer than that, I ran into an old friend uh, who's retired now. He taught me at Theological College and I respect this fellow no end. And his youngest daughter was starting university and um, <clears throat> she was doing uh, sciences and uh, the good thing he was glad of is that she's going to this university and there was about nine or ten others from her church going with her to this particular course. And there were a lot of people, uh, this is back pre-COVID, that were sitting there in this course in the lecture theatre, waiting for the first lecture. And the lecturer came in 
And he, he put to them, he said, you know, oftentimes I find in courses like this, it was a biology class, actually, uh, oftentimes I find amongst us are people, and he chuckled, who actually believe this world is created by a creator. Can you believe that? Is there anyone here today who believes that? My friend's daughter put her hand up and she said, I'm, I'm one like that. I believe that. And he went for her. He accused her of being all sorts of things, a complete intellectual Neanderthal. Not only that day, but every day as she arrived in the lecture, he would stop the lecture and get them, there goes the creation scientist, as she took her seat. And she took that on the jaw. She actually took it as confirmation that she and Jesus were like that. She can be sure that if you align yourself with the right definition of glory, the serpent still has his fangs out for you. Now the interesting thing is that I find about this story is that she was sitting in the same lecture with nine others that went to the same church and were actually involved in the same music ministry. But they kept their heads down. I ask you, when she is my age and they are my age, which one will still be kicking goals for Jesus? Which one will have something to show in eternity for a life well lived? bet you can guess I love Jesus our words here as he simply says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified as soon as he said that heaven broke loose with praise this is what the heavens had been waiting for a son of his love who would obey him to the last And every time you stand for Jesus and you put your hand up and you say, I am with him, heaven rejoices. This is what heaven has been waiting for. A life lived for Christ. Not the decent life. Not the normal life. The fruitful life is what Jesus has for you. I want to suggest tonight in the quietness of this moment that you bow your heads in prayer as I pray for you. And I'm sure that Lauren, myself, Miriam, any of this bunch over here would be glad to spend a little time in prayer if that is some issue here that you want to resolve about your life direction this night. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Father God, we thank you, our Father God, that this Jesus who walked these dusty trails, who moved through these crowds, is the Jesus who sits in glory this night and has the recognition that he's his due. Our Father God, we just pray that you would take our feeble faith and you would fan it aflame into full flourishing and that you would claim us for yourself 
And we simply say to you this day, this Lord, the only appropriate thing we can say is, Lord, take our lives, break our lives, bury our worldliness and use us for your glory. And we look forward to seeing what the history of Q Baptist will show 20, 30, 40 years from now as a result of this prayer. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Thank you. We're going to respond to that sermon um, by singing together. Let's stand and sing. Uh, We're going to sing the song Transfiguration.